Hey there, welcome back to another episode of CupyCast. Are you hoping to learn more about unions or progressive movements? Then you're in the right spot. I'm Brittany Nisbet and I use she and her pronouns. And I'm Tiffany Balducci, she, her pronouns, reminding you that we're the only podcast of our kind, combining union info, pop culture, and more. Kicking ass for the working class, one podcast at a time. Whether you're a member of CUPE, in a union, wish you were in a union, or just found us while browsing, you're definitely in the right place. And I'm Elise Lelai, she, her pronouns. Often when people think of unions, they think of higher wages and safer working conditions, which is true. But unions also fight for equity, equality, and the human rights of all. Today's episode is a conversation with activist and human rights representative, Kimberly Phillips. You're listening to QBCast episode 21, Human Rights Are Union Rights. Today, our format is a little different. Um, so Tiffany and myself were recently on a panel at the CUPE Ontario Young Workers Conference with our amazing guest, Kimberly Phillip, and she had so many insights and it was such a wonderful conversation that we really wanted to keep that conversation going here and so that all of you could listen in. Yes, today we are joined by Kimberly Phillips, who is an experienced social justice and organizational learning consultant, facilitator, writer, educator, and researcher. Her work is deeply grounded in and informed by Black and Caribbean feminist thought and practice. She completed her bachelor's degree in human rights and law and her master's degree in legal studies at Carleton University. Kimberly specializes in the fields of legal studies, workers' rights, gender-based and sexual violence, anti-colonial, anti-racist pedagogies, and organizational development. She has conducted qualitative and participatory research and has created and facilitated various workshops, curriculum, and learning spaces across Canada, Ghana, Jamaica, and Grenada. She works as a human rights representative at CUPE National and does movement support work with the Association for Women's Rights in Development, also known as AWID. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kimberly. Um, I also want to give a shout out. Brittany mentioned that uh, we were all on the panel together at the Young Workers Conference, and we actually are using some of the same questions as part of the conversation. So shout out to the Young Workers Committee for inspiration <laughs> for this conversation, too. And Kimberly, I know that you and I met almost 10 years ago now at uh, CUPE National Young Workers Strategy Meeting, which I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But can you tell us how you got involved with the labor movement and, and, and with CUPE? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I am so excited to be in conversation with you all. Um, I should also add that with my bio, I no longer, I'm no longer with AWID. It was a joy doing feminist movement work across the world, um, but I'm no longer uh, doing that work with them. Um, yeah. So how did I get involved Honestly, I think it started when I decided to um, leave Grenada, the small Caribbean island in the south, southern part of the Caribbean region, 
to pursue my undergraduate studies at Carleton. Um, I really thought I was going to stay in the region. I had applied to the University of the West Indies, um, but they took pretty long to get back to me. I thought I was going to become a lawyer. Um, and so I applied to other universities. And in particular, I applied to Carleton because a lot of Grenadians who have played really crucial leadership roles on the island went to Carleton. So it kind of felt like mm. me continuing this like lineage or following um, following the paths of these amazing folks. Um, and when I came to Carleton as an undergraduate student, I immediately got involved in student union stuff. It was it was wild. I think it was like my first week at Carleton. Wow. We saw flyers that the university administration was trying to take away our pub, our student pub. <gasps> what? And save our pub. And so wow. um, we like left residence at like, I think two, three in the morning to head over to be- create a barricade, a human barricade of our pub. And I oh, think I that, love that. I think the wow. first of me being there um, and being in Canada. And so just witnessing the student union and the work they were doing, which was an array. And then I eventually got a job at one of the student centers, I think in my second year um, in undergrad. And I, I just knew the wages were good. I was like, oh, these are like really high wages because I had already been working like smaller jobs here and there to pay for all the bills and all the international tuition fees. Mm-hmm. Um, well, these wages are really high. Um, this is great. But I had no idea why they were high. <laughs> you know, I thought I thought it was actually reflective of the student union, which technically is the employer. Right. Um, and so I was a member of 1281 without knowing it. Um, and so returned to 1281 about eight years later when I worked at the Graduate Students Union at New York University. But at that point, I was an active union person. Like I was very much aware that my wages and my benefits and these really good working conditions were due to worker uh, worker solidarity, worker power, and not so much an employer. <laughs> very true. Oh, there you go. Well, so uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, I I love that story of getting up at two or three in the morning and doing a and becoming a part of a human barricade. That's that's awesome. And what a fun introduction to the labor movement. Doing some sort of action like that, like that's just so fun. Um, so one of our recent podcast episodes, uh, it's titled Young Workers Rising, and it was released at the end of September. Um, so that episode focuses on young workers. And in that podcast, we speak about how many young workers are starting to organize within the labor movement. Can you talk about some of the findings or trends that you're seeing with the new or young workers in the labor movement? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so, you know, QP Ontario has a Young Workers Committee, which um, it's not one of the committees that myself or the other human rights staff person in Ontario supports. So I, in many ways, I do feel a bit disconnected from the incredible organizing being done by young workers, especially because uh, according to QP's policies, I'm no longer a young worker. So <laughs> there's <laughs> my <laughs> Same. Um, <laughs> But I, I think will, that's where we all got our start, actually, was that committee. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's it's a start for so many workers. Um, and I think for me, be able being able to bear witness to just incredible organizing I'm seeing happening within union spaces, but also outside of union spaces. So, for example, I think it was July 2020 or June 2020 was right around the time when Regis Kuczynski-Paquette uh, died. Um, mm. And 
it, we were still like so uncertain about what we can do. We're in this pandemic. What is safe? What is not safe? And there was a rally organized in spite of that all to support the family and friends of Regis, but also many other Black, Indigenous, and racialized people who had died as a result of encounters with the police. And so I remember saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm gonna head out there. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to wear my mask and trust. Mm-hmm. And I was brought to tears to see the, like, the vast and diverse numbers and types of young people who were on the streets. And they weren't just on the streets with their signs or just, you know, being a body to be present, but they were Mm -hmm. like at the forefront of organizing. And these were people I hadn't seen. And not not to say that 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 matters, but I think what we're seeing is more and more newer faces, newer voices, newer experiences. And I think it's really powerful. And I think there's a boldness and a courageousness that young workers and young people are really tapping into. They know that they deserve better. Um, The narrative that, well, what is left is all you have and, uh, um, and that you're, you're apathetic and you're, you're so ungrateful. I think they're really pushing back against those narratives um, and really forcing us to reimagine a healthier, more sustainable, more honest way of being in conversation and organizing. And then within the union spaces, like at conventions, for example, where, you know, we see that's our highest decision-making space within the union, within QP, like to see young workers get to the mics, um, speak to resolutions, resolutions that you might think on face value have nothing to do with them, like on pensions, right? Like they were seeing the range of issues um, that they see not only affect them in this moment, but they know that it affects generations to come. And so I think there's a deep radical honesty that young workers are inviting us to really hold and embrace. And I think the moments when I get um, bitter or jaded rather I think it's a young worker who's like, no, no, not at all. Do not believe that that is impossible. Yeah. Not, you know what I mean? Right. And I really appreciate, appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, young workers are the present and the future. Um, so, Kimberly, you've also done a lot of work on social justice, anti-oppression, and anti-Black racism for many organizations, including QP. Can you speak to some of the work you've done to support QP's advancements in these areas? And what are the trends you're seeing? Yeah. So first, I just want to acknowledge the many QP aunties and folks who of course. have been holding things down for so many yes. years. I remember when I was a young worker and I was at a convention and there was an uh, an older Caribbean woman. Her name is Patricia. Uh, she Patricia was a personal support worker and Patricia would go to the mics at every convention to remind the floor that they cannot forget the many workers, many of them precarious, many of them holding multiple jobs, like PSWs. And so these are the women, right? Like these are the the women who were not taken seriously. They might've been dismissed. Um, People probably started to tune off as soon as they hit the mics, but they were consistent and persistent. And because of their work, I people like me have been able to come through, come through the doors and be able to do the work. So I just want to really acknowledge people like Patricia um, and even Sandra, like many other women in in Mm -hmm. the labor movement. Um, And so when I 
decided to take seriously applying for QP jobs, I really wasn't certain I would get a job with QP, to be honest, even right. though I was a member. Only because, you know, when you're vocal as a member, like, you know, you know that there, there are things, there are things at play. And so I wasn't sure I would get in. And then I finally got an interview. Um, and honestly, like, it was probably one of the hardest interviews I had ever done. Um, mm-hmm. Two hours long. And wow. I wish a long I, time. Yeah, it, it, I wish I eat. I wish someone told me eat a solid breakfast. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> I would get hungry. <laughs> just because it, it was long, and so there's this all of the stuff that happens when you're in interview process that's happening. It's not just the physical labor, but like the emotional stress and all of that. So anyway, all yeah. this to say, I finally got in, and I remember telling the racial justice committee, "Y'all, I got in. I finally have a job," and they were like crying, like they were. Aww. They're members, you know, and so it's just really crucial for us to remember that we were not islands and I'm here because of them. Um, And so because of them, I've been able to do some important work, which I'm so grateful to be part of. When I came into the region, into the Ontario region as a human rights rep, QP Ontario had already begun the work around the anti-racism organizational action plan. And I've been able to come in and to further support that work and We've seen policies be reviewed as a result of that work. We've seen um, a shift in who's taking up the leadership positions on the board level at QP Ontario, but also among committees within the sectors. We've seen um, more and more workers who are experiencing systemic and interpersonal racism speak up. And I think that's not solely as a result of AROP, to be really clear. Um, but I think what AROP, as a, what it's doing, it's creating a portal through which change can occur, another portal mm-hmm. through which change can occur. Um, and through AROP, we now have this incredible program called the Women in Leadership Development Program, WILD, which we, you know, we thought of this program, I think, like 2019, mm-hmm. because one of AROP's priorities is to really focus on the participation, leadership, and representation of Indigenous, Black, and racialized women. And so we're like, okay, knowing that pillar, what can we do? And so we had started thinking about what this program could look like in 2019. Then we know what happened, 2020. Um, mm-hmm. And so we were just so thrilled to be able to launch this program uh, this year, we received over 80 applications to a program that can only hold 15 participants, which I think speaks to the interest and the importance of work of programs like this. Absolutely. And since the program started officially in August, we have seen these 14, there are now 14 participants take up space in such powerful, beautiful ways, ways but also show up for one another. Um like they have already run for leadership positions and won. Like they, <laughs> like they're just they're just killing it. And I'm just so honored to just be there, helping to build the infrastructure that they need because they're they're leaders on their own. They just they just need the green light, and they also just need us to step back mm-hmm. and create the infrastructure so that they don't burn out. And so that's one right. of the programs that I get to be part of, and I'm really really excited about. That's amazing and extremely exciting and inspirational. And um, I want to keep talking about that. And we're going to, but right now (laughs) we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit about um, 
the pandemic. And and you mentioned it a bit before, um, organizing during the pandemic, but you know, the pandemic has disproportionately affected many workers, but you know, more so equity seekers, and, and we're still in the midst of the pandemic. Um, you know, what do you think employers and governments or anyone that you want to talk about here, what do you think they need to do to ensure, you know, the stability and growth for all workers? Oh, wow. That, that's a, a great question. And I wish I had like Fred or Yolanda to come. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True. Um, I I think there, there are so many things. I think this and this, this is going to probably be a bit of a tricky statement to say, because I think in the union world, we have relied on this really strict binary between the employer and the employee. And that is as, that's the result of many things. It's a result of how employers have treated workers for many years and continue to do so, especially when they try to organize and build their power. And I think that there are times when that binary sells both parties short. Um, because there are moments when we could do so much together if we just released our egos um, mm-hmm. and if we just like acknowledge that we messed up, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and then said, OK, then what is best for the whole, for the collective whole? So I think there's that piece, which can feel a bit abstract. But I think in, in many ways, like let's there are moments when we know we can get past this binary and it's actually what's best. And there are moments when this binary needs to be solidified. And we need to like hold our ground and we need to push back. And so I think just giving us space to be a bit flexible when needed. Um, I think another thing is employers need to realize that, and I think they know this, but like workers are the reason why you exist and why your your company exists, your organization exists. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. This idea that people should be just grateful for the measly wages or just grateful for the fact that they have a job is so insulting. Um, I, and I agree. Think, absolutely. Like, I mean, even in the nonprofit world, you know, we've seen at many times when this idea that you just give all of yourself and work 60 hours a week and don't even think there's anything wrong with that because you believe in the work. And if you don't do that, that's somehow that compromises your commitment to the work. And I think we need to realize that what we're talking about is labor, labor that needs to be adequately compensated and mm-hmm. that it should not, it should not rely on how, much a person can run themselves to the ground for them to be seen as a deserving uh, employee and worker. And I think there's another piece around the safety and wellness, like health and safety. I think we're seeing more and more um, psychosocial hazards and systemic issues like oppression and racism being considered in the realm of health and safety. And I think we need to continue pushing that. I think we need to really acknowledge the ways in which intergenerational trauma and anti-Black racism and colonialism and anti-Indigenous racism directly affect the physical and emotional and spiritual uh, well-being of workers um, and that employers have a responsibility to to do better and to make Mm -hmm. sure that the workplaces are safe. When we say workplaces are safe, we're not only talking about the audits and the checks and balances um, and like ex- like recognizing risk and hazards. We're also talking about the risks and hazards that are associated with racism and sexism and xenophobia. And, and I'm seeing too many situations where 
workers are getting sick as a result of experiencing racism on an ongoing basis. Um, and that getting sick might not be immediate, but it like lives in their bodies and they sometimes keep it internally and then they leave. And then what happens to that worker? So I think we need to expand how we understand health and safety. We need to expand how we value work um, and really not see it as workers should just be grateful. This is not altruism. Like we're not, yeah, we're, we're here as partners in negotiating um, respect in the workplace. And, and I think also like, I think employers also just real need to realize when it's time to, to walk away. Like if you are no longer able to do your job as a decent employer, then you need to walk away. Um, and I think that goes back to like holding on to power where even when you are no longer effective, or maybe you're still effective, but you're no longer what is needed. So I think there needs to be uh, some of that work being done on the employer side within mm-hmm. their spheres. Thank you so much for that, Kimberly. Incredible answer. So our next question is, what advice would you give to our young workers as the current and future leaders of the labor movement? Hmm. Well, let me think about what I would have wanted to hear. That's <laughs> but, a great idea. I mean, I think when I was a young worker, people insisting that I have every right to be where I am and I have every right to take up space wherever I felt like there was alignment and a need. Like there was this like, whenever I questioned myself to hear someone say, actually, no, not at all. You have every right to X. I think that mm-hmm. really helped. And I think, yeah. and now it's it's a narrative that I keep telling myself as well. Like you have every right. It may not be where you stay. It may not be, um, like I might, I might make a decision to walk away from a particular place, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have a right to be there in the first place. So I think just, you know, reminding yourselves about that. I think there's also a piece, like I mentioned in my first response, um, like young workers really reminding us that we deserve better. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think as, as young workers, just a recognition of when something no longer serves you um, and when it's time to walk away because yes. you do deserve better. Like, um, I think given the systemic realities of our, our world right now with the increased cost of living and inflation and all those things, we may feel um, locked in to certain positions, like, for example, locked into a job because we don't have a choice. And I know that, that that's real. Um, and so you might have to stick it out. And I think also recognizing that even if that is your reality in this moment, it doesn't reflect who you are as a person. Um, it doesn't mean that you still don't deserve better. Um, and I mean, it was really beautiful to see at the start of the pandemic, the many mutual aid spaces and networks that were developed. And I, I would love to see us maintain some of those and, and, and actually create more because I think the way the world is set up um, we don't, we can't always rely on those in power who we elect into power to look mm-hmm. out for us. And it doesn't mean that we don't hold them accountable, but I think we also need to have parallel organizing where we are creating networks and, and circles of support for ourselves mm-hmm. um, so that we never feel like we're in this alone. Um, because I think when we start to believe and think that we're in it alone, 
it can go multiple ways. We can get super selfish and narcissistic because we're just looking mm-hmm. out for ourselves and everything right. else is a threat. Um, or become, we become really sad um, and, and cut out from the larger constellation of love and support. So I think those are just some of the things I would say. And, and I, so, yeah, alignment, walking away, letting go when, it, when, it, when you need to shed, but also believing that you do deserve better. You have every right to take up space. And I would also say stay humble. Yeah. <laughs> I... As a young worker who came from the university sector, to be specific, I think there were times when, um, you know, we believe that we have the answers because we've studied all the things right. and like pretty arrogant. And, mm. and I think that arrogance blocks us from being in solidarity with others and also recognizing the ways in which we can be complicit. So I would say stay humble there are multiple truths and take accountability for when you mess up. Those are, that's, that's such a good answer. I'm like, I'm kind of like in this moment where I'm like, I'm just so wrapped up in what she's saying because <laughs> it's all so right. <laughs> and like referring back to like moments in my life where things have happened, I'm like, yep, yep. So anyways, <laughs> we'll get back to some questions, but that was phenomenal. Um, And so you had already mentioned, you already touched on how participants in WILD um, are setting up things that they like don't burn out as individuals. And I I really appreciate that. Like uh, at least least Tiffany and I are always ensuring that we have proper boundaries so that we don't burn out. And, and, but I'm sure that there are other, um, other things that we can do. So what are some of the best practices that equity seekers can do to support one another in the labor movement? Yeah, well, I mean, for those who are unionized, I would say make sure you know your collective agreement, make sure you understand your benefits package and make use of it. Um, For those who are not unionized, whatever processes that are in place within your workplace that allow you to access different forms of care and um, respite, definitely use them. I am someone who uh, I always try to use my vacation because one, we've negotiated this. It's our right. Um, and well, it's, yes, I'll leave it there. Yes. And secondly, um, like I just, I know that that's, those are the moments when I'm able to uh, refuel and take a break and disconnect in very needed ways. So I know sometimes our work can feel so intense that we don't know when we can take time. And that's a, that's a workplace issue. That's a structural issue because right. it doesn't make sense to have excellent benefits if you can't take them. So yeah, yeah right. I want to encourage that. Um, and then I think another piece is, and this is something that I'm still struggling with, but it's deciding like when to choose the battle like is this battle worth fighting over and that's a tricky one that's a tricky one but I will say that I have had to use discernment over the years um to to really preserve my mental health and so there are times if I see something that's happening that is absolutely unjust. I will, I will say something. And if I feel like I can't, I'll talk to someone else who I think can. Um, but there are times when it's an issue that doesn't need to be addressed in this moment. Um, and so that again, requires discernment and I don't always get it right, but I think we, we need to do that. We need to like not make every battle our own. Otherwise 
will deplete us. Um, but connected to that, and I spoke about this earlier, is not doing these things on your own. So if you feel like you're on your own, you may feel like you have to fight every battle because there's no one else in your corner. And so I think being able to get a sense of who else is on my team. Um, and, you know, the people on our team might not be people we see all the time. Um, and that can be really hard. For example, there might be someone uh, who's in a different local that, you know, as, is sharing similar things that I'm saying. And I'm like, oh, I wish I knew this person. And like, we don't see how the ways in which our work is complementing each other. So I would say try to find your people, try to find your circle, even if it's two or three of you, mm-hmm. because we cannot do this on our own. And the employer really benefits when it's just individuals trying to like hold them to account because they can right. easily like pin us off or, you know, get rid of us. So there's that. Um, I'm trying to like not, I'm trying to like stick to some of the structural pieces um, because I think capitalism has created this narrative that self-care is you spending money. And so I'm mindful. Um, but I will say that allowing your body to rest is so key. I, for years, I have really tried to maintain a, like a about six, I try to get eight is like my dream, but like six to eight hours of sleep every night. And I know that this is impossible for some people. If you have, if you're a caregiver, if you work night shifts or like many things that affect that, but rest is just so crucial for our body. So in whatever context you're in, if you can try to find ways to bring rest in so that your body can do the healing work it needs to do, um, I would really encourage that. And within within the labor world, we know that part of our culture is like, let's grab a drink and talk shop, you know, like you're yes. always at the bar or like yeah. chilling at a party. And I think those things can be fun and they also need to have their limits. And so there are times when you might just have to say, uh, not tonight, or can we maybe go to a coffee shop instead of a bar because my liver. Because right. yeah. my liver. <laughs> yeah, just like, just reimagine different ways love that. of being in a relationship um, that don't always require this like toll on our bodies. Um, and again, the piece around knowing when to walk away, like that's really key and that's hard, but there are, there are moments when things are no longer serving us and you will know, you will know. And then we make that hard choice of calling it quits or doing things differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I love all of that, Kimberly. And I also am a huge fan of uh, using our entitlements and our collective agreements. So I'm glad that you um, raised that as well as so many um, important ideas there about uh, setting boundaries and and real self-care, not, uh, you know, um, capitalism's idea of self-care. And you've kind of already answered this question. It's been encapsulated in everything you've said, but, you know, what would your definition of leadership be? How would you define leadership, quote, in in quotations, leadership? Mm, Yeah. I mean, for me, the kinds of leadership that I have seen practice that have benefited and supported me and the kind of leadership that I'm trying to practice is one that um, shines the spotlight on more people rather than less. Um, And so I don't need to be at the center. I don't need to be like 
applauded. I don't need my name in this in the forefront. Or if my name is going to be there, it's also going to be alongside other people who are also contributing to the work. And my kind of leadership is also one that's honest. And so um, recognizing that people offer different kinds of labor and all of those are valuable and it's important to give credit when credit is due. So I know that might feel mm-hmm. contrary to the first point I raised, but I, I don't think it is. Um, yeah. And then there's a, another part of my leadership that is really grounded in letting spirit lead. Like, and that might feel weird, but I, I really try to ground myself before I embark on different projects, before I speak on a panel, before I enter a room. And so that will look different for different people. Like, for example, I have a friend who will go for a quick 15-minute walk before they jump into really intense meetings, and that helps them. For me, um, if I have time, I might uh, sage or I might offer something to the universe like a prayer or just ask for guidance. Um, And I think that has been really helpful for me because it reminds me that there's a reason why I'm doing this work. It's not about me. Yes, it is partially, but it's so much more than me. Um, so I would encourage folks to like find your grounding, whatever that looks like for you, um, and and try to like, yeah, try to like enter your leadership, be a leader from that place of being grounded and rooted in something that is much bigger than you. Um, I think another part of my leadership is one that really invites the range of emotions into the room in ways that are responsible. And I say that because I have seen moments where people are invited to bring your whole self and tell us how you feel, but we, but there isn't a container to hold all of that. And then people end up leaving feeling really raw or exposed mm-hmm. Um, And so I think we need to do these things in really responsible and honest ways. So for example, if I'm in, if I'm facilitating a meeting, I try to be really honest in terms of what I can offer or what is available to you in this meeting and what is not. So if someone chooses, for example, to disclose something that requires support that is not present in that room, they're doing that willingly and coming from an informed place. So I think being really honest, I guess that's another piece is being really honest about what you're capable of and what you are not capable of. And do not try to sell, like sell yourself to the point where it's no longer honest, right? Like I'm not going to pretend like I can do all these things when I know I cannot. And I think being really honest about parameters and expectations is a really uh, authentic way of building relationship. Um, so, yeah, I guess my leadership style is like one that um, really invites um, sensitivities and emotions and softness and vulnerabilities and honesty, uh, collaboration, play. Um, yeah, like I think we get so serious in our meetings that I think it feeds into why we're scared to make mistakes because then we look bad. I'm like, bring in play and bring in. Um, uh, an invitation to like see mistakes as fun, <laughs> not fun mm-hmm. rather, but like um, that is part of the game. That is part of it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I might be, might be beginning to ramble a bit, but I think 
that is kind of like the kind of leadership I am building. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much for that, Camille. I'm so happy we were able to get you on the podcast today. Um, so we're actually going to end on a really big idea and probably one of my favorite questions that we've asked you mm-hmm. today. What is your biggest hope and goal for the future? Ooh, my biggest goal <laughs> and hope for the future. Yeah. Mm. Honestly, I think it's that every day that passes, we see more of ourselves in one another. I love that. I yeah, love that too. That's amazing. Um, just super wonderful. And, and what a way to end uh, this conversation, which was this truly excellent conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I know our listeners will too. And um, I'm sure I'm sure they'll be reaching out to you, <laughs> Kimberly, as well, uh, um, to, to follow up and maybe, you know, get you on. We have uh, listeners from all different unions, and they'll probably get their the wheels and their brains turning as well. So thank you again, Kimberly. And, and that's a wrap on another episode of the QP cast, uh, Human Rights or Union Rights. This podcast is researched and produced by us, Brittany, Tiffany, and Elise. And we want to take a moment to thank all the QP Ontario staff involved with this episode. Without them, this podcast wouldn't exist. If you have future podcast ideas or feedback, please send them to info at qp.on.ca. We also want to thank our fantastic editor, Mohammed Akbar, for being the edit master. This podcast would not sound as great as it does without his talents. And lastly, we want to thank you, our listeners, because without your support, we would not be able to make and create this monthly podcast. Thanks for listening. Sending solidarity.